Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at radical secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello, and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. Today on our news segment, we will have the latest on the Trump campaign's crash and burn strategy for the home stretch of his campaign, the collapse of Attorney General Bill Barr's fake investigation of President Obama. We'll talk about the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Barrett, uh, Mitt Romney, <laughs> Keith Olbermann, fake ballot boxes in California, and Republican rats like Senator Ben Sasse jumping off the sinking Trump ship. We'll have all that for you and more. And our second segment today is our guest segment. We have a special guest. His name is Joe Zimhart. He's here to talk to us about the connection between cults and spirituality, the right-wing authoritarian movements, with an emphasis on Church Universal and Triumphant. For those of you who don't know, Church Universal and Triumphant is the cult that both Christoph and I grew up in, and it was started by my parents, Mark and Elizabeth Prophet. That's their real name. <laughs> today, today, the vast majority of the members of that church have become Trump supporters. No surprise. Mr. Zimhart is an expert on the history and traditions of the occult. Basically, all non-traditional religions is what he covers and, and traditional religion. He has a YouTube series called Cults in the Occulture, which I found incredibly interesting. So after our guest segment, our third topic will be cleaning up the mess. What a post-Trump America might look like if Joe Biden wins the election, which it looks like he's going to. So fingers crossed. <laughs> and uh, we will be going off the radical radar, which is a brief summary of what Christoph and I have been up to this week. Before I, we get into that, though, I want to first remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to hit that red subscribe button and be sure to give us a five star rating on your podcast channel. Tell your friends and family about our show. Word of mouth really matters. Second, I want to plug the Just Words Fallacy Medium publication. Just Words Fallacy posts weekly articles from progressive, diverse authors related to politics, religion, rationality, and justice. Link is in the show notes. Okay, let's get into the t-shirts. Christoph, what are you wearing today? All right. So today I'm wearing a, uh, so back before the pandemic began um, and we used to be able to go to bars, Lindsay and I would frequent, um, and a lot of my uh, my friends and buddies would frequent a place called the Pet Shop. And it's a bar in Jersey City. And I'm wearing this shirt for a couple of reasons. I'll, I'll just um, let, you, uh, let you describe it for me, Sean. Okay. It says Pet Shop and it has a skull. Uh, it looks like the skull is in a cage of some sort. And uh, let's see if there's anything else there. I don't, that's, I think that's it. And that's the gist of it. So what it is though, is that it is my favorite bar in Georgia city. Again, um, I haven't, I've been there once uh, to actually buy this t-shirt um, since, <laughs> since the pandemic. Um, but the point is, is that it, it has uh, there's a, it has a, sort of cage of skull, which is very misfits, um, which is a band, a hard like sort of punk band. Um, and so um, I'm wearing it today because it would be um, and uh, just such a we're talking to uh, Joe later. And this would just fly in the face of all of the cut theology and all the cut ideas. And secondly, um, as we're going to this election, uh, you know, I'm reminded of how happy I am to live in this city, Jersey City. I really do love living here. And I went and dropped off my ballot today or a couple of days ago. And just the feeling of doing that in this city again, four years later, um, was really exciting. So that's why I'm rocking the shirt today. So what about you, Sean? Well, I am wearing Baphomet. 
Very nice. Very nice. Beautiful, beautiful image. I love it. I love it. I love the, uh, the, the, this, it's basically just Satan, right? Um, the Satan look, I love it. Well, this is a very interesting image because, you know, I always like to talk about, uh, you know, gods and devils are really two sides of the same coin. And so we don't really particularly put much stock in gods here at the Radical Secular, nor do we put stock in devils. So to me, this is just another, you know, it's like, are, are you talking about, are we talking about uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke or Darth Vader? It's like, these are just... <laughs> Characters in a movie, you know, characters yeah, in, in, yeah. And, and, and in our psychology, more, more importantly than that. And I, and I really like this Baphomet because, you know, it is it, it, uh, Baphomet has a beard and boobs. I love that. I love it. I mean, I and, and you know, this just this just really gets under the skin of religious type people who have who have really like repressed their sexuality and who are really pissed off about sex in general. And so, you know, the idea of Baphomet is just it just gets it just gets under their skin. And I'm happy to do that because, you know, I, I'm trying to move them to consider uh, how ridiculous their religion is. I mean, it's just it's not this is not because I, I don't believe in the devil. I mean, come on. Who are we? Who are we kidding here? Right. Of course not. <laughs> so, OK, it's absurd. <laughs> uh, all right. Let, let, let's get into the news then. Um, up first. President Trump says he might leave the country if he loses the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's just fantastic. And right, I mean, he has been setting this up, um, right? Like he, he sees the writing on the wall. Uh, and look, we're not in the prediction business here. We're not, right? I mean, things look great at the end of last, in 2016, it didn't work out well. So who knows what happens? But at the but Trump does see the writing on the wall. He, he sees the polls. He has better polling than we ever see, right? And so he knows what's happening here. And so he's trying to set it up. Right. A, it's 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 if it's a um, it is a if if Biden wins, then it's going to be it's a hoax. So it's whatever. And maybe I'll leave the country. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the, he, he's 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 been increasingly sort of coming to terms with this, you know, first of all, saying there's not going to be a peaceful transition of power because I'm going to win. You know, and then now he finally said on his uh, town hall that, that he would. And, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, before that, he was begging suburban women to please like him. As far <laughs> as I'm concerned, man, this is Trump going like this. Right? That's the Trump campaign right now. <laughs> right? That's fucking perfect, man. You're absolutely right. So, you know, I mean, he was there debating. He he can't stand being held to account by women, right? Whether it's Hillary oh Clinton God. or or this uh, this you know Savannah Guthrie, who is who was uh, the moderator, right, at his at his town hall. And I mean, she interrupted him practically as many times as he interrupted Joe Biden. It was hilarious. It's so true. She was the best. Uh, moderator I've seen in all of these debates so far. In fact, she might be one of the best moderators I've ever seen um, in terms of holding uh, not just him to him to account. Like, I mean, it's really great that she must have really studied the last the last debate, right? And saw exactly what she needed to say. How does she need to say it? She's also an attorney, right? And so she, and she is apparently really good at cross-examination because she essentially cross-examined him in real time, fact-checking him. It was outstanding what she did. I re and, and we talked, we talk about Jeff uh, Stephanopoulos, uh, uh, Stephanopoulos uh, yeah, later yeah, on, well but. Yeah, well, that's journalism. What Savannah Guthrie did is journalism. That's that we need. We fucking need more of that, you know. <laughs> so true. But, you know, uh, Biden, of course, talked to voters for ninety minutes, and shocker, actually just answered their questions and uh, oh. with mostly factual answers. I mean, Stephanopoulos, like, 
I don't know, man. He was just seemed like he was there to prove that he wasn't a shill for Democrats. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. That's a really good point. It's like he was just there to like sort of make sure that uh, right that he could walk away and not be criticized after the fact. Like that's what it sounded like he was there to do. I think you brought it up. Uh, you brought it up uh, earlier where you were talking about how he was just right. He was just there to sort of to grill, not grill Biden, but sort of point out flaws and what and what Biden and what Biden said. And Biden, for his part, was, I think I walked away from that feeling. He's always come across as very president presidential uh, throughout this entire race. Um, he's been like the president, right? The shadow president in some way. Um, but he really came across this time. He really shines in this environment, right? Um, and he was just connecting with the voters. The way he talked about, oh, you know, let's he mentioned to the black dude, he's like, you want to talk afterward, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then he and did, he and then he did, and then he in fact did because that's the kind of guy he is. You know, I, yeah. I was, I watched, I listened to Positive America this week, and they had Obama on, and Obama talked about this exact thing of how Biden is, um, and it was so. I had these back to back experiences of being like, oh my god. I listened to Biden for an hour and a half or whatever. I listened to Obama for an hour and I'm like, wow, right. This is what it sounds like when people are just at a minimum competent, just at a minimum. We've gotten so um, just, I guess, inert or immune or just numb to, you know, Trump's craziness. And yeah, you know, this is what we need in a president and how people can criticize him. I don't know. But, you know, we had a lot of that this week. You know, they're trying to they're trying to go for the kill right now. And mm -hmm. Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, remember him, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, attempted to drum up another scandal about Hunter Biden, which is the thing that we've been talking about that they were pushing. That's what Trump was impeached for, for fuck's exactly. sake. Exactly. I know. Exactly right. And you know what? This is really interesting because what they want, because at this point in the race in 2016, they were in a similar position, not as bad as they were now, but they needed a break, right? And they got it with the email scandal like days yeah. before the election, right? Comey and everything else. So they yep. so they're looking for that again because that is what turned it turned the tide for them. That was enough to push them over the edge. I, well, that's what people trusted the FBI. Now, you know, it's like nobody like nobody's going to trust anything the Trump government says, which is that's a great if, point. You're, if you're not already a supporter. And so this whole thing just fizzled out like a wet firecracker. And and as a matter of fact, you know, first the story broke in the New York Post and then uh, social media downranked the story. And then uh, Kayli McEnany, uh, the White House press secretary, uh, that theocrat. Uh, she got her Twitter account frozen for trying to share the story. So talk about the Keystone cops, man. These guys are just <laughs> just <laughs> cops. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's almost like slapstick. You know, it's so comical, you know, that's why I brought the slide whistle, because you know, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's just, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, now the FBI is saying that Giuliani had been duped by a Russian intelligence agent about the story and is now investigating him. So it's just like, uh, you know, it, things look good. Things look good. And, and um, I hope they stay that way. Yeah. Because uh, Republicans are jumping like, you know, rats off a sinking ship. I mean, uh, Senator Ben Sasse just recently accused Trump of coddling dictators, which everybody, all the Republicans know this, they just of haven't course. been willing to say it. And, um, mm -hmm. You know, Trump fires back and says he was stupid and obnoxious and the least effective of our 53 Republican senators. But the only way Trump thinks anyone's effective is when they kiss his ass. So, you know, it's like it's, it, everybody I think people are just sick of it. I think so, too, Sean. I I think so, too. I think the like the jig is up. Right. And again, I'm not taking a position on whether or not Biden wins because I just don't. And I'm not superstitious. I'm really not. Um, but nevertheless, um, 
you know, maybe I just don't want to have egg on my face after the fact, but, um, uh, but we are seeing the right, the rats flock running off the ship. Uh, as I like to point out, this is like an animal in the, in the corner, uh, right. Being poked by a rake a rabbit animal. Like we are watching this, we are watching the, the machinations, right. The appeal to the white suburban uh, women by just saying like, I'm going to protect your damn house and you don't like how I talk, but here mm. I hear, but it's like, and, and not even trying to make a real pitch to voters, but just like, just begging for their votes. I mean, begging. again, it, like begging for their votes, like right off from the, from the lectern and doing these sort of rallies every day, just to stoke his ego and get out the vote. But you know, this is what happens when you don't make any attempt to consolidate a coalition or this to govern happens. or to or govern. govern or to just, govern or, or have a plan for, for the next, he doesn't have any plan. His plan is, you know, um, cause unlike any other election, there's going to be an election and then there's going to be a, a post-election battle. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, this happened a little bit with Bush v. Gore, but it was, that was small. That was one state and it was like close. Uh, so he knows this needs to be close because if it's not close, it's over. And I guarantee yep. you, even if it's not close, he's still going to try to pull something. Definitely. I mean, we know now who Donald Trump is. Um, and Obama said yesterday that the, like running for president uh, show reveals who you are and and becoming president or shows your shows your weaknesses and um, reveals your weaknesses and and becoming president puts them on full display. Mm -hmm. And we now all like we all knew he was a shitty guy before, but now we know he's not only shitty, he's incompetent, he's uh, he's a narcissist, he's a sociopath. We now know all of these facts about him, and we're and now it's not just we progressives that know this; the entire country knows this. The only question now is whether people who are really racist and people who are who are really into white supremacy, whether they're willing to to, to say, okay, even. In the fa face of economic disaster, even in the face of a pandemic, even in the face of all these things, my position in the hierarchy, this man is going to defend it, and I'm still willing to do this. So this is going to be hardcore Christians, mm -hmm. outright racists, mm -hmm. and soft racists, right? Um, that's all who's left. That's all who's left. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and we, and we see, you know, the, the Republican party is abandoning him and they have to hedge their bets a little because if he wins somehow, you know, they're, they're worried, but uh, you know, like John Kelly doesn't, he, he has no fucks to give. And uh, he, <laughs> you know, he said about Trump this week, uh, the depths of his dishonesty is just astounding to me. The dishonesty, wow. the transactional nature of every relationship though, it's more pathetic than anything else. He is the most flawed person I've ever met in my life. Now, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> so, that's you know, that, I love that. I mean, that's the ever met in my entire life. And, right, yeah. and this is, I think, what most people who have met the man and have worked with him at least, I think, mm -hmm. probably walk away feeling, unless they are like sycophants, you know? Yeah, well, and of course, anytime Trump, uh, uh, you know, has someone say anything like that about him, he immediately goes after that person's character. But he, with John Kelly, he said, like, he hired the guy. How are you going <laughs> to criticize the guy that you hired as being a, you know, no good or inconsequential or any of that kind of stuff that he normally right. does? He says, oh, he was always a loser. Well, you hired him. Why did you hire yeah, so him? Why did you hire a loser then? That really calls the question your, right, your thought process a little bit, right? I mean, how do you hire people? We know how he hires people, but, 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 but I see your point, you know. He doesn't think things through, you know? So, um, 
And Bill Barr's investigation just, you know, he's a rat still on the ship. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he recently concluded that uh, his fake investigation into President Obama and Joe Biden with no finding of wrongdoing. And he had people in the Justice Department quit. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago about Mm -hmm. uh, some some very high level uh, prosecutors in the Justice Department that have quit over this thing. And, uh, you know, it wasn't enough for him and Trump to suppress the findings of the Mueller report, which was very damning to him. Um, he had to try to go and turn it around that it was actually President Obama who committed the real crime and Unreal. President Obama who should be arrested. But, you know, it all fell apart. There was no wrongdoing. And uh, since President Obama was doing his job. And what's happened here, what's happened here is what happens to um, anyone who builds and Joe Acapinti uh, 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 said this in his piece that he wrote for Just Words Fallacy is that whenever an, whenever react, when an ideology that's, that is based on hierarchy and dogma runs into reality, it's mm-hmm. inevitable that it runs into reality. Reality exists. No matter how you try to pretend like it doesn't, it really actually does exist. And there really is objective truth. And so you can believe whatever you want to believe, but eventually it's going to run into reality. And luckily we have an electoral system that means that 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 there is a there's some level of accountability. Of course, it's eroded significantly. One last chance at this point, because if he has a chance to, you know, imagine another three or five hundred federal judges. Uh, oh my God! Imagine you know um, all the other all the stuff he could do with a bureaucracy already. You know he's politicized the bureaucracy substantially, but imagine you know by the end of a second Trump term, it would be completely politicized. There would be no experts left, nobody who could get us out of the fog of nonsense. That That's absolutely been. right. That's absolutely right. So um, and, yeah, and speaking of which, uh, the the uh, I, I know I was going to talk about why I called. Uh, Barrett, Amy, COVID, Serena, Joy, Barrett. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, look, okay, first of all, we know that she is like the handmaid because she was in the group that the handmaid's tale was based on. And so, you know, um, Serena Joy actually was somebody who was probably smarter than her. So I don't even know if she deserves that. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Because as a, as a, as a justice, she's just, just, you know, as a judge, she showed her complete ignorance, you know, during those hearings. And, and, uh, you know, her first thing that she did was to bring her children to that white house rose garden ceremony where nobody was wearing masks. Unbelievable. She would endanger her own children. So what's she going to do for, you know, when she has to rule on things that have to do with America's children. Um, and, and here's a list of all the things that she, I mean, just a partial list of some of things she didn't know or wouldn't answer. Yeah. Uh, she wouldn't discuss how she would rule on some of the most consequential issues of our time, like Roe v. Wade, climate change, or voting rights. Uh, she would not commit to recusing herself in any case related to the 2020 election. She couldn't name the five freedoms in the First Amendment, specifically forgetting the right of citizens to petition for the redress of grievances, which is what the judicial system is literally based on. I know you have something to say about that, Christoph. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so... <laughs> boy. Yeah, right. So uh, as a jurist, right, um, she is, uh, I think that a lot of the folks up there gave her a uh, a pass. Um, the judges included, the, I'm sorry, the uh, senators uh, gave her a, sort of a pass. I, I, so at the end, Feinstein uh, went out and said, uh, oh, look, you know, this was the most amazingly run um, 
uh, you know, process. I'm so glad, Mr. Chairman, that we did this for the American people. Then she went and hugged uh, Lindsey Graham afterward, which is, first of all, a violation of social justice, uh, of, um, of, of social distancing norms, but also like Lindsey fucking Graham. Are you kidding me? I mean, she, I think Feinstein needs to go. But the point is that like, th like there's, there's people that gave her a pass. And this woman, uh, she made a mockery, frankly, of not only the process, but of, I think, lawyers, of, of, of attorneys, right? She is a mockery of attorneys because attorneys is a commitment to the law. She hides behind origi originalism and Scalia and all that, but that's fucking bullshit. She is an activist judge. She is absolutely an activist judge. This is who she is. And so this sort of, you know, we, we, we get this from the right all the time, right? She wasn't even able to answer, like, right? It's literally in the constitution that the, the transition of power is in the constitution. And she refused to say whether she commit, whether to commit, she could commit to that. This is an, or she said she's an originalist, mm -hmm. but she can't even say, oh yeah, you know what? I can concede that, yeah, the, the constitution says, mm -hmm. Literally in words that uh, talks about the it's, it's not that's not implied. There's no right, and so this woman is a joke. She's a shill. She's and and you know uh, this entire time, Sean. This entire week, I listen to the news every day. I read the news every day, just like you do, just like our listeners do, our smart listeners do. And I was depressed, even though I see the polls and things are looking great. I know there is nothing we can do to stop her from getting on the court. And there's nothing. So Mitch McConnell has spent the last three years pumping the courts full of people just like her. And he finally got one on the Supreme Court. This makes Kavanaugh and all of them look like nothing. She is oh, yeah. she is exactly what we're that what why we do this show. She is exactly it, Sean. Yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 so many things, okay. Um First of all, like she's not even an originalist because she doesn't know her constitution. But even if she were, um, the original constitution without amendments is a document for feudalism. It is. It is. It does not. You know, it disenfranchises black people, women. Um, it is. It favors property over over human rights. Um, it is a. Uh, you know, the, the electoral college and the senate are undemocratic. Uh, the original constitution. I'm going to say it and I don't care who doesn't like it. It's not worth being used as toilet paper, honestly. Yeah. 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 So the, so, you know, um, as, as an attorney, uh, you know, my fealty is to that, um, it's that, it's that document. Right. Um, and I, not that I'm offended by you calling it toilet paper at all, but I'm not, I'm just <laughs> not like that. I mean, I just, you know, fuck, so fuck, holy cows, man. I'm not, you know, fuck that. Um, uh, I will say though, that it is, and this is right. This is why the originalist argument is for the original argument. Originalist argument is always just a smokescreen for I want to hold back progress. Like that's all it. It's all all it ever was. That's all it ever is. And now, by and by the way, and we talked about this last week, how finally the veneer of civility and as and the the right the curtain has been pulled back. They're, the emperor has no clothes. We're not even. They're not even dog foghorns. We're not even pretending to be originalists. We're not even pretending to care about process in the Senate. We. It is a naked power grab, and we're and they're not even pretending anymore. Right. Well, and I also want to qualify what I said about the Constitution. I think that if you take the Constitution and then you add the amendments, okay, mm -hmm. and then you add the entire body of case law that has been developed over the last 200 years mm -hmm. to help interpret the Constitution, and you give, uh, you know, you have a Supreme Court like the Warren Court or a Supreme mm -hmm. Court with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on it mm -hmm. and a, a liberal majority, 
then you have something that we can work with. Mm -hmm. But when you corrupt the process, mm -hmm. okay, by taking it and saying, okay, first of all, we're going to throw out a lot of these established uh, cases that have granted people human rights. We're going to um, even possibly go back and throw out some of these amendments, you know, to the Constitution, although they can't really get rid of the amendments, they can change how they're interpreted to make them meaningless. Uh, as they've done, you know, as I mean, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment were really not fully applied until this century. And they were passed, you know, in in the, you know, the uh, well, I, I guess they were they were applied when the Civil Rights Act came in in the 20th century. That's what it really that's what it really like became as a practical matter. Yeah. Enforced. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right about that. Right. And the idea of stare decisis, right, is sort of the bedrock of how and precedent is a bedrock of how our, 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 our judicial system works, how 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 uh, judges um deal with cases and case law, and they're bound by the cases that they passed before. And so the idea that you can just at any time, and she refused, by the way, to fully commit to that concept as well. So at, at the idea that you could at any time just throw out those rulings um, is it, it is, it is a, it, it just demonstrates that we are talking about the most activist of activist judges, right? The person who thinks that like, because these old cases that they think were wrongly decided, including by the way, um, the um, anti-miscegenation uh, anti um, uh, stuff. We have um, uh, uh, gay marriage, all these things that she thinks are bad. And she thinks that she just doesn't, it doesn't matter that it's okay, that she can just, she can just vote against this stuff. Here's the point. At some point, she's going to have to choose. And the Affordable Care Act, for fuck's sake, the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's horrific to contemplate, which is why, you know, um, this is she really is the handmaid's uh, the handmaid's uh, justice on the Supreme Court. And she's going to have to choose at some point between her overriding Christian faith, which she's been she's imbibed her entire life. I mean, you know, you just look at her life. OK, she has seven children. She's she considers herself to be owned by her husband. I mean, this is it, it just it beggars belief that she would get all the way through the gauntlet of a lifetime like that, living in a group like that, uh, clerking for Scalia. Uh, supporting originalism, and then suddenly now she's going to rule fairly on cases? It's just, it's impossible. It's a fucking joke. It's a fucking joke, man. And you brought it up, you know, you brought it up earlier too, right? This idea, like, she, and, and I don't know if it was you or somebody else um, who was talking about when she talked, her describing her children, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So this is, so this was, Go for it. this, this is was huge. reported. This is yeah, it's huge. huge. Okay. So um, when she talked about her biological children who are white, uh, she focused on their intellectual achievements. But when she was describing her black adopted children, she focused on them, on their temperament and them being athletes. So it's very Un clear. fucking real. Un yeah. fucking real. And this is the woman who said, oh, I can't possibly be racist. I have black children. Yeah. Well, and this is what they do also. You know, this is the, the, her idea of, of uh, social justice is, oh, I adopted black children. Well, that doesn't help anybody else. That's you in your wealthy, connected family. Right, uh, uh, doing this one good thing. Well, what about all of the poor kids who you're not adopting? And uh, so she'll go ahead and she'll rule against you know various programs that will help other people while being all self righteous and saying, "Well, I do this for my children." And, and I can't even imagine what those poor kids are learning. I, 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 as a person of color who grew up in a white environment, like and and around people who didn't take social justice seriously, who didn't understand the, the ex black experience and this woman this woman is raising those children i i my heart 
hurts for those children because they are going to go through a lifetime of either A, being like Candace Owens, or B, having to find a way to come to terms with this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's the journey that we've, you know, you and I have been through it as well, Absolutely. both of us, because we had to get out of, you know, this highly religious environment and exactly. I mean, these kids, they've got a tough road and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, my heart goes out to them. Um, well, I had a bunch of other stuff we were going to talk about in the news, but, um, you know, we, I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. Mitt Romney is, is, you know, tone policing and telling us we need all this civility. He went after Keith Olbermann, who, by the way, if you haven't watched it, Keith Olbermann is back with his daily worst person in the world segment. It is awesome. I missed him and uh, it's good to have him back. But uh, he definitely ruffled some feathers, including Mitt Romney. So, uh, and <laughs> Mitt Romney can go fuck himself, honestly. I mean, I've just, I am so, I've had it up to here with his faux civility. And, but when it really comes down to it, he was going to vote, he's going to toe the party line, just like, just because he thinks he's going to one day be the savior of the Republican Party down the road. You know, um, if he actually showed some metal and stood up for things and stood up for what was right, that would be a different question. But at the end of the day, he won't. He won't. You know, he won't. I mean, here's the thing. And you've got him as supposedly the, you know, the moderate Republican, the good Republican. He could save America from this justice who will, without question, um, you know, take away human rights from millions of people in this country and, uh, and, and probably worse climate rulings. Who knows? But he could save America from that, but he won't. He won't. Nope. So he sure won't. He can go fuck himself. We both agree. He, he, like he, he wants his regulations. He wants his deregulations. He'd be perfectly happy with there being no abortion. And uh, and he wants his pro-business. And so, you know, this is the deal that all those sort of Republicans have made, right? They've all made this sort of deal with the devil. They're like, right, we'll deal with these batshit right-wingers um, because we're going to get our deregulation, right? And we're going to get our deregulation. That's all we want. We want deregulation. And the last good Republican, I think, was John McCain because he actually saved the, he saved the Affordable Care Act. You know, and um, but not Susan Collins, not 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 Mitt Romney, not any of these guys, you know. So. So Fuck. anyway, uh, something like 25 million people have already voted, many of them braving long lines in GOP states. Apparently, it's looking like it's a big Democratic surge since we haven't seen too many red hats in those lines. <laughs> it seems like everything is pointing to a Biden win, but we cannot relax until everyone votes and all the votes are counted. So please, I'm going to be we'll be hitting this hard next week as well. Get out there phone bank, write letters, contribute. This is the home stretch, folks. And uh, good luck to us all. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, man. I, I, the anxiety, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's been it's been tough. Um, all right. Well, let's introduce our guest. Uh, Joe Zimhart is an artist, a cult information specialist and a mental health professional who currently works for a psychiatric emergency hospital in Pennsylvania. He made his living as a cult interventionist from 1985 through 1998 after exploring and rejecting groups and teachings derivative of theosophy and new thought, including Agni Yoga and the Summit Lighthouse, also known as Church Universal and Triumphant. Earlier this year, he published Santa Fe, Bill, Tate, and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Intervention Specialist. He is often sought by the media for his opinions and expertise about cult phenomena. So without further delay, we bring you... Joe Zimhart. Joe, welcome to our program. Thank you for being here. Sure. I appreciate you inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity for a conversation with uh, my past almost and uh, what's going on today with about all of this cult stuff, including the group that you and I were most interested in at one time. Yeah, and I'm really glad that uh, I'm really glad that we could make this happen, and that you and that you were willing to do it. Um, 
Before we get started, do you have any kind of a, of a t-shirt or, or a painting or anything you'd like to talk about? And Well, sure. Um, I put this shirt on here. I don't know if you guys can see it. I'll stand up a little bit. Um, it's from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that's the city where a lot of my questing began and how I got involved in, in the IM activity, the Agni Yoga Society and the Church Universal and Triumphant back in 1975. And uh, my backstory is that all that came together all in one day, the first day I got there, the seeds for that exploration began. And it happened in an art gallery. I was uh, in a friend's art gallery, uh, uh, Bill Tate. I met him that day and he represented my work there until he died in 1987, but um, we got to be friends. So uh, Santa Fe has a deep significance for me in, in my life. In fact, the memoir I wrote begins uh, Santa Fe, Bill Tate and me that I published this year. So it, it, it's uh, that whole event is described in there, how this journey started of an artist becoming a, cult specialist or an intervention specialist. Yeah, well, um, I want to start out first by acknowledging that uh, Joe and I are not entirely strangers. And although this is the first time we've actually spoken in person, um, uh, we have a history. And and it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition because both Christoph and I uh, grew up in uh, the cult my parents started, which was the Church Universal and Triumphant, uh, otherwise known as the Summit Lighthouse, or more commonly to ex-members, Cut. Uh, in the years since I've been out, I've often joked that cut is cult without the L. And they really <laughs> they don't like that word. They don't like the word cult at all. And They uh, do not know, like they, it. They really, really get upset. Well, they, when, they don't even like short uh, uh, names like Joe. They, they want to call you Joseph. Right. So cut was considered uh, some kind of a, an evil rendition of Church Universal and Triumphant. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've both been out of that cult for a long time. And I still remember, you know, you were sort of seen as the bete noir in the cult. <laughs> you were, of yeah. course, uh, as you just mentioned, the, an exit counselor or deprogrammer. And, uh, you know, your name was featured prominently in our uh, <laughs> decree sessions and, and, and uh, you know, the fact sheets on our, our enemies list. Uh, which they oh, that's always... remarkable. I didn't realize that, that you know, all those, because I, I remember the invocations that we used to do, right? Yeah. Where um, and I was really young, um, but still we had to learn this sort of stuff, right? And I remember those long invocations that my parents would say on Saturday mornings with their chopping sword. And so it's funny to think that your name, Joe, could have been in part of that. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. Um, it, you know, it's the it's it's the the use of the, the what they call the science of the spoken word, which is decrees. They call them decrees. And the idea was that when you speak out an idea, it, it, it actually has vibrational power that can affect reality. It's, it's called sympathetic magic. In other words, if, if, if I say something about somebody, it's going to affect them wherever they are on the world. Mm -hmm. It's kind of saying kind of like voodoo. It's just, I mean, voodoo being Same a physical thing. representation of that. <laughs> Um, well, can you want to give us uh, a brief recap of your experiences with CUT and deprogramming? Because I know that uh, you, know, they were, you were involved in some pretty high-profile cases. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about the cases. You know, I, I probably exited from personal interaction, from talking to people, about 30 or 40 people out of CUT and hundreds of others out of other groups. So I had a wide range of experience with, you know, uh, Summit Lighthouse, uh, Bible-based cults, uh, a couple of them were atheistic, uh, 
One was an insurance company. One was run by a medical doctor down in Louisiana based on the Gurdjieff teachings. I mean, it just goes on and on, uh, the variations on this theme. But mm-hmm. my uh, interest in, in the Summit Lighthouse came via two groups uh, that I got introduced to when I first moved to Santa Fe. And I, I read about this group called the Agni Yoga Society and the artist Nicholas Rorich. And I got fascinated with his backstory. He was a mystic, a Russian. He died in 1947. Uh, he's, him and his wife, Helena Rorich, started a group called Agni Yoga in 1920-21. And it was pr- fairly successful. Um, it's one of the more successful of the theosophy groups that was started by Madame Blavatsky back in the late 19th century. Uh, today, there's about 3 million Agni Yoga members in Russia. So okay. it, it has a significant following there. Of course, the founders were Russian. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and his wife were supporters of Agni Yoga, Riza being kind of a devotee back in, in the, I wow. found that out when they were going through Perestroika in 1989. But, but in, in any case, I, I started studying the I Am teachings because um, I was hired to help remodel a building that used to be the I Am Center in, in Santa Fe. And the, the owner's mother was a devotee of the group, and I got to know her. She was an elderly lady, and she lent me all these books. I was curious about what this sect was about. And it had a, a lot of what's called new thought, which is the idea that, that you put on the perfection of God or Christ in your mind and think only positive thoughts and, and good things will happen to you, health, wealth, and prosperity, all of that. Um, and they also combine theosophy, the idea of channeling ascended masters or masters, angels and, and gods and, and whatever through the particular leaders. Uh, so I, I thought that, well, you know, I grew up Catholic as a Catholic. There's all this stuff about saints and communication with saints. And maybe this just ramps it up. So I got curious about it. Friends of mine, a couple of years later, introduced me to the group they were in. And I met them that first day, but they didn't tell me that they were part of cut back then. Um, and they got excited because I already was studying a lot of the core teachings that Church Universal taught, and I found out that the Agni Yoga teachings were taught at the fourth level of Summit University, which was their highest level, and I had already read them all, so I figured I was already in, you know, so (laughs) I started to go out to the conferences uh, in 1979, and I went to three of them, the last one I went to was in 1980 and Easter time. Um, the second conference I went to, and, and Sean, you, you, you could probably describe them from your point of view, but there's thousands of devotees were converged in at the time near Malibu in, in uh, California for these four or five day conferences. I think there were four days and a lot of chanting and listening to lectures. And, and your mother, of course, was channeling masters, which was an exciting event for everybody there. Um, so I know when I came back from the first one, my first wife told me, well, she noticed there's something different about me because I really was enthused. And she said, you're not the same guy I married. I mean, I was that, I didn't think I'd changed, but she saw it, you know, and heard it. And the things that changed were, you know, I, I cut my hair short to conform with the style the Mormon like look that the group members had, uh, shaved my beard. Uh, stopped wearing certain colors like red and black. You know, there were sacred colors in the group. S- stopped listening to rock and roll. Stopped using marijuana. Stopped, you know, listening to jazz. 
Um, all the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. All and, the and, stuff and that makes sex, it worth it. <laughs> you know, sex, sex had to be elevated to some kind of a pure level, which irritated my first wife, obviously. So yeah. uh, we were divorced. <laughs> we were divorced within a year of, wow. of that. Wow. Of, and and so and and a lot had to do with my involvement. It wasn't the only thing. So my my strict involvement with Cut was a for a, a for about three months, I can remember as being a real devoted person trying to catch up with all the damned uh, lectures that you had to listen to because they were on audio tapes back then mm -hmm. and uh, learning all the decrees. I mean, it was endless amounts of information. No one in the group ever caught up with the information being poured at them from, from the group that I recall, which oh. is part of the stress. You can never be pure enough in your mind to follow these strict rules. So interesting. It, it sets up a shame yeah, game yeah. Where, where you're constantly blaming yourself and being shamed by these pure teachings, you know, and, and that's always in your head. You know, that's what the brainwashing or whatever you want to call it is about. Um, I used to supervise. Story, I, I used to supervise the uh, production of a lot of those tapes. And, and let me uh -huh. tell you, with the duplicator was running 24 hours a day, three shifts yeah. on uh, getting out those tapes. We, we never stopped producing content. It was a it was a factory. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The content was impossible to catch up with. And, and you know, th there were layers of involvement in the group. They, they had the staff members, which were the most devoted. I think there were around 700 at the time living on the campus. And most of them lived in rather, you know, we'd consider poverty conditions. They didn't get much money from the group for all the sacrifice they were doing for the group. I think some said they got like $75 a month or 125 a month. Uh, it was really low, you know, room and board plus, you know, barely enough to buy toothpaste and, you know, yeah. supplies. Yeah. So, you know, there were, I guess they, the people that were real devotees thought of themselves as monks or nuns, which are supposed to be self-serving and I mean, self-sacrificing. Mm -hmm. um, the Agni Yoga group that, you know, existed in New York City and it was uh, headed by Sina Fosdick. Mm -hmm. at 107th and Riverside, where the Rorich Museum is. And I would visit there during all this time. Um, I got to know Sina. She was a direct disciple of the Rorichs when she was young. She joined in the 20s. Um, she spoke Russian and she had German. Uh, I think her husband may have been German-Russian. I'm not sure. But, but in any case, they, the Agni Yoga group never pressured me to do anything. It was all my self-involvement. There wasn't any sense of the world's going to end. You have to decree nothing like that. It was kind of low key theosophy. Um, and, and anything I wrote sometimes to, to Sina, she answered in very short notes, very kind. Mm -hmm. uh, and she died in the early 1980s. But I did ask them, I said, what do you think of this Church Universal and Triumphant? It's using your teachings and Rourke's paintings. Is it, is it getting copyright stuff? And they said, no. Um, and I said, well, aren't you going to sue them or whatever? This is when I was getting out of cut. And they, they said, no, that the, the group karma will catch up with them. That's how they put it. <laughs> so they weren't going to get into litigation. But later I found that Agni Yoga had its own controversy as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1936, Roach, had, uh, the, the leader, had gone to an expedition to the Far East and, Mongol and Mongolia um, with U.S. scientists. And they were sent by FDR. And Rorich was supposed to be helping to look for seeds and things that could survive the drought during the Dust Bowl in the Southwest. They were going to try to do something about that. 
And Rorich wasn't much of a scientist, and he kept running around looking at temples and spiritual sites over there, and the scientists grumbled about him. The U.S. government investigated him and found out that he wasn't paying any taxes on the paintings he was selling over here, which was quite a bit. He was supported by some wealthy millionaires and, and uh, people around the country at the time. So the U.S. government uh, refused to allow him back in the U.S. after 1936. He was persona non grata. So, so there's a whole history there of, of yeah. that kind of stuff with Agni Yoga here. The well, I am activity. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say let's let's talk about um, about how you finally decided to get out of uh, of cut and uh, start working as an exit counselor. What motivated that for you? Yeah, I wasn't looking to become a deprogrammer exit counselor. That was the last thing on my mind. I when uh, I noticed the conflicts one within myself regarding the group, I, I just said this is too much. You know, I, I'm not willing to do all this, which I think. Most people quit the group because of that. It was high demand. And they said, you know, I'd rather just do something else. But the conflicts I had were internal. The, the, the Agni Yoga teachings were saying some things that were very conflicted very much with what Cut was saying. For instance, Cut was anti-communist, virulently so, and anti-liberal. You know, they were very right wing, waving the flag and, and all of that sort of thing. And you know, the, the old King James Bible was part of their doctrine, whereas the Agni Yoga had nothing to do with Christian Bible. It was more esoteric and mystical, and, and it invited more Buddhist and Eastern teachings into it. And Rorich, you know, being Russian, he visited Russia and was accepted there, and he viewed um, Nikolai Lenin as a Mahatma, meaning a great man. And he would have been, a, you know, again, evil, according to the Cut Doctrine. So there was one conflict I had, you know, how could you can't have both in the same group. Um, the, the I am leaders uh, told me that Elizabeth Prophet was a fake prophet. And mm -hmm. I also found that other theosophists like Torquem Saradarian, who ran the Aquarian educational group in the Malibu foothills, he regarded your mother, Elizabeth, as a phony. You know, he represented Blavatsky, Bailey and Agni Yoga. You know, so I kept finding all these conflicts. I said, listen, all these people can't be right, but they can all be wrong. And so I began to back off through a, a series of uh, uh, steps in the summer of 1980. And, you know, in, in trying to get out of the, the cut mindset, I was actually having panic attacks at night. That's how deep it can get into your, your yourself. And it wasn't until... Um, I, I didn't know what to do about it. I tried all kinds of things, you know, not thinking about it, hiking in, in, in the mountains, you know, to kind of purge myself for a day, a day and a half. Um, and it just kept coming back in my head. <laughs> I, I stopped to see this Catholic nun, you know, growing up Catholic. It was a, I knew she was an older lady and, and uh, I needed someone to talk to. And I, I just happened to be going by after a hike where this monast this nunnery was in Santa Fe. And I told her about my, my problem because it was kind of spiritual, right? And she didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but she's very small, like four foot 10. And she said, well, Joseph, uh, you know, can I pray with you? And I said, sure. <laughs> but but that, that personal attention just unleashed some kind of emotion in me. And I, and I started to cry. And after that day, I mean, I, I had this incredible sense of release. It was like psychosomatic, you know, when I look back. And 
I let go of any sense of guilt or shame I had about the whole thing. It just got flushed out. And when I started reading the critical literature, I had no triggers left. I wasn't afraid of anything. There was no phobias, you know, about dark magicians getting at me for betraying the, the teachings and all this phobia indoctrination that the group had uh, used on, on their members. All of that left me. And so I was free to explore um you know, it wasn't about Catholicism. It wasn't about anything. It was about skepticism. I was, I was a true skeptic at the point. And, um, and, and out of anger at myself, I, I just, you know, kept reading and exploring the background of theosophy, the background of, of the I, I Am movement and, and all of that. Friends of mine in, in Cut asked me why I quit. And they wanted to talk to me because they were having some issues. They had been in a lot longer, like five or 10 years, a couple of them. So I went to talk to them. And within a few hours, four or five, six hours of sitting with them, they quit based on the information I had dug up. So that was my first exit counseling, so to speak. Oh, um, I met a young woman. I did a portrait of her for her fiance at a mall where I worked. And she was trying to recruit me. She worked there also. I was doing portraits for Christmas in 1980. She was trying to recruit me into her Foursquare Gospel Bible Church. Oh, yeah, that's Amy Semple McPherson, right? Yeah, it was. but this was run by a guy who considered himself a prophet and and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just listened to her and I let her sort of recruit me, but I began to ask her questions and show her differences in her Bible interpretations because they use the old King James the same as your mother did. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of flaws in the old King James translation that, that are cleared up in later translations. Um, you know, the whole thing in Isaiah that says, command ye me, when God says, command ye me, that's what they use as the, as the um, uh, biblical reference to say decreeing is okay. You can decree God's energy. Right. And that's a mistranslation. It's not the way, it's not what it's meant. It's not what's meant there. So, she had those things wrong, among other things about separation from her family. In any case, in a couple of weeks, she decided to leave her cult. I met her family inadvertently when they came to pick her up. They hadn't seen her in six months. And they were Baptists. And she was in a Bible cult, right, that separated her from her family. So they were so happy to meet me. They took me out to dinner and we they prayed and all this stuff. And, and <laughs> that's when it dawned on me how much impact, you know, it didn't have just on my personal life, but this kind of thing, what we call manipulative, deceptive cults, or, or what I call self-sealing social systems, um, you know, they cut you off from free thinking and, and uh, exploration with the environment. Um, and it's psychological and, and, and spiritual the way they do it. So that, that um, imprinted on me how important this whole thing is. I still wanted to avoid getting into it too deeply, but just this one last point, I, um, I went to a, a workshop in Santa Fe that some people, they're actually a mixed group of Christians were putting on to help people with cults and the occult and all that kind of stuff that was going on at the time. And when I went to their one day conference, I kept putting my hand up and, and correcting things they were saying about the new age and different groups they were mentioning. And, and they asked me later on if I would help them because they were going to start this organization called uh, the Center for Christian Information. But it was a lot of it was non-sectarian what they were doing, and it was a voluntary thing. So I missed the first meeting, and um, 
they called me up and, and said they, they elected me chairman. They wondered if I would be chairman of the group. So I decided to help them out. And, and, uh, and it was an interesting group of people. It really was. One guy was a professor of philosophy at the College of Santa Fe. And, you know, there was a, mixed, a mixture of people there. One was a minister and, and uh, one lady was a former nun. Um, so I went to a National Cult Awareness Network Conference in Kansas that year to kind of get connected nationally with people that knew more about this stuff um, in order to help this small group in Santa Fe. And when people at the, at the uh, National Conference found out about me, uh, these the programmers and exit counselors were asking me if I would help them on certain cases, you know, to go out with interventions and uh, I could get paid, you know, which I had done all this research for four years. I hadn't gotten paid a cent yet and I uh, was helping people. Um, so I said, okay. And I began to help on these cases and, and it just, you know, the, the, the calls kept coming in. And by the end of that year, 1986, it was a full-time job. Wow. Yeah. And I started working internationally and I did it for 12 years. So that's basically how I got into it. Well, I, I want to say, I think that, you know, you're not, you have an obvious, like deep knowledge of the theology. You probably know more about, uh, about the theology of the, of my parents' group than, than I do having grown up there. And, and uh, the way we got connected was because uh, you have your YouTube channel. And uh, of course we'll link to that in the show notes. And um, th there's so much information there. I just, I, I love it. And, uh, we're gonna. We obviously we've touched on some of it already, and we'll touch on more. But what I really want to get into is just the title of our show is uh, you know before Q there was cut, and uh -huh. and I'm referring of course to the QAnon conspiracy cult and some of the similarities that we see because it's so it seems so familiar to me um, of that conspiracy to cut beliefs, particularly those passed down from some of the predecessor organizations such as Theosophy and the IM movement. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit of what, what your impressions are of QAnon. Yeah, I, I did a short piece on it, which was a little bit um, with some humor because I wore a tinfoil hat during part of it. That was, that was awesome, man. Like I actually have a, <laughs> I have a note here because it, it was really great. In fact, in general, I love when your intros are always really good on your show and they always have sort of a little bit of a, of an interesting little twick, but like the, the pulling out the tinfoil hat was just great. It was perfect. <laughs> it was right on point. You wore it, you wore it good, man. It was great. Well, it, you know, the one thing about those short pieces I do is I, I think about them, but I don't rehearse them. So I think they kind of just happens and it looks natural. Perhaps I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing is what I'm trying to tell you, but <laughs> But as long as people get something out of it, you know, so far they have, which is good. Um, yeah, QAnon, uh, a writer, a, a journalist approached me about it a few months ago. They were one of the major newspapers and they're doing a piece on it back then. And they wanted, and, and they, they talked to a colleague of mine that said you should be talking to Joe because they were looking for the I am angle to it. Apparently something about the I am movement or that kind of teaching was influencing the early, the, the people that put QAnon together when they were doing it from the Philippines, um, yeah. which it was called something like 4CAN and 8CAN. Uh, yeah, 8 Kun, it, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But first, I think we should explain what the I am movement is. I'm not sure our okay. listeners know that. Right. Uh, now, I, just to let you know, I haven't really found a direct connection between the two, although there could be some, in other words, that the IAM didn't create QAnon. That's not what I'm saying here. 
But the, the I am movement, I am is the word that comes from the Bible, meaning I am that I am or God. And so that's where they got their names. And, and, and originally it was called the I am activity and it was founded by Guy and Edna Ballard. And the Ballards um, uh, founded the movement in the early 1930s. But prior to that, they'd been fascinated with spiritualism and trying to make their living uh, finding gold mines and that kind of thing. And they weren't very successful at it. Guy Ballard got into trouble selling a fake gold mine shares in Chicago to some gold mine called the Lake of Gold out west. And he sold it under a different name, like Brad Gilbert or something. And he, and he was um, fined and busted in, in court in Chicago. This is well before he became an IM leader. So what, what they did was they have been reading all this literature like um, Brother of the First Fourth Degree, uh, Fourth degree, I brother think. Brother the third is, degree. Uh, brother the third, third degree. degree. I, I'm I've sorry, read that. Third degree yeah. by Garver. Yeah. And Maria Corelli's books and all this esoteric books uh, uh, about spirituality. Uh, they were influenced by um, uh, the Psychiana group up in uh, Moscow, Idaho, uh, which had like a mail order religion where they sent out these things with color coded prayers you know, all over the country. It was very successful. That sounds familiar. That, yeah, that sounds right. very familiar to me. Guy Ballard used that idea to incorporate into his I Am movement. He also was influenced by William Dudley Pelly, who was a fascist, an American fascist, that started a group called the Silver Shirts. And you got to remember, this was started around 1930, and he was in court for fascist activities in 1934 in the United States. Um, when... He spent a year in jail, but it was so in 1933 when he was indicted, a lot of his members began to go uh, to attend Guy Ballard's I Am activity group. So let's be really and, clear. We have Pelly, who was indicted for fascist activity, right. and his members left his group, the Silver Shirts, right. and went into the I Am movement. They went into the a, a big group of them did. In fact, one of the Silver Shirts became the Guy Ballard road manager when they first started going on this lecture tour all over the United States. So the, the I Am group was based on their first book, which is a kind of a spiritual adventure book by uh, Godfrey Ray King, which was Guy Ballard's pen name. And it was probably written by Edna Ballard because Guy couldn't write very well. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it's a story about uh, Guy Ballard or, or Godfrey Ray King exploring uh, mines or whatever in Mount Shasta. And he meets this mysterious being that calls himself St. Germain. And it's that Comte de St. Germain from, you know, the, the 18th century um, and uh, 17th. Anyway, he, um, uh, St. Germain was also one of the key figures in Blavatsky's theosophy in the late 19th century. She channeled information from him. Saint Germain also is a, is a revered finger figure among a lot of Freemasons that believe in the esoteric part of Freemasonry. So, so Guy Ballard as Godfrey meets Saint Germain, and Saint Germain takes him all these spiritual these spiritual adventures. There's temples inside of Mount Shasta, believe it or not, where things happen, miraculous things, and Guy talks about all his adventures with Saint Germain in this book called. Um, Unveiled Mysteries. Oh, that And classic. then they put out a second book, you know, very similar to that called The Magic Presence. And that was the only two spiritual adventures books they put. But that's the foundation Bible, the foundation document for why they exist. 
Well, and, what's interesting about that is, is sorry to jump in, but um, yeah, okay. my, my mother uh, in her home in Red Bank, New Jersey, where she grew up, um, found her her mother had those I am books, the 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 unveiled mysteries and the magic presence on the shelf. And she found them when she was like 17 years old or whatever. And that started her on the path to looking for this type of, of organization and wanting to be involved in this type of organization. So it was very influential. And and they are uh, somewhat of a fan fiction for yeah. uh, theosophy. Like it, it was it, Edna Ballard or whoever wrote those books was kind of just, um, you know, building onto the previously existing material from theosophy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, there's dozens and dozens of uh, up to whole paragraphs plagiarized from previous books in order to create Guy Ballard's real adventures with St. Germain, right? Uh, so she was cobbling together material from other sources. So they weren't pure experience in, in that sense. Uh, in, in any case, the, the group gathered a lot of members by, by a conservative count, 50,000 by the end of the 1930s. The Ballards claimed over a million. Of course, they tend to exaggerate everything. And they would lecture at places like Masonic Halls, Unity Churches, any place that would uh, accept them at the time. Um, and, and they got quite wealthy. They got a lot of property in Chicago, Santa Fe, and, and Shasta and other places. And there's IM centers, uh, or what they call temples today. I, I visited one uh, about two years ago. It's in Philadelphia. There's an IM temple there. There's a couple of them in Washington, D.C. There's one remaining in Chicago. There's one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So the cult still has an ac active uh, membership. Most of them are elderly. Mm -hmm. And, and could, can you just elaborate a little bit more on, you know, how you see the the fascist and conspiratorial beliefs uh, having uh, traveled from theosophy to IM to the cut movement to, you know, later yeah. uh, incarnations like QAnon? Yeah, the um, the, the fascist uh, uh, track comes from the idea that, you know, the fascists are, are these this double headed axe that's bound by rods of power in ancient Italy. And the Caesars would pass the rods of power onto the next Caesar. And, and Caesar was considered kind of like a divine king. The gods appointed him. And, and uh, uh, so the idea of fascism means that you have divine right to rule, basically. So it's, it's more than just demo, demo, democratic. It's, it's a lot heavier than that. You know, it comes from above, in other words. Um, so, so that's where the word comes from. The fascists, the fascism comes from that. That, well, and that's why we. Power. That's why we are uh, the radical secular because we are specifically against any sort of divine intervention in human affairs. Like we think that people should decide democratically uh, how they should be ruled, self-rule. And the idea, as soon as you bring God into it, you're bringing in this unaccountable, uh, invisible uh, being that nobody can argue with, and so it becomes a recipe for tyranny. And that's our whole mission here is to oppose mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's been shown throughout history, like the Holy Roman Empire and whatever, that, you know, when you add that kind of transcendent power, which human beings don't have, to a human leader, you're going to run into trouble every time. There's no way yeah. around it. Yeah, right. These these people, right, um, and uh, 
Godwin's law, right? But I'm going to talk about Adolf Hitler, but this is an ob- the most obvious example here, right? Who uh, thought that he was divinely inspired or was a special guy in that, in that specific sense, right? And all through human history, right? I mean, the divine right of kings, right? Mm-hmm. This was always this idea that there are um, there is a power above the sort of you uh, um, typically male leader and and he had in that power and all the way back to the pharaohs right the idea that these individuals are infused or imbued with sort of this uh this divine power which gives them the divine right of kings and they are the top of this hierarchy and that's something we talk about a lot here on the show right mm-hmm. we talk about these hierarchies certainly uh cut was one of those sorts of hierarchies um but we see this all the time and it's and it's 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 and within the political sphere it's terrifying right because you have people. I was reading, read, I read, I think this week, right, that there are uh, that the number of of uh, people who are, are of authoritarian mindsets in the United States is somewhere around twenty or thirty percent of people of, and typically these are conservatives, right? But these people who are happy to eschew democracy, right, the, right, the sort of the idea of having that divine power at, uh, on top of them and sort of demanding things of them is somehow comforting. Um, so I, I just think that's a really interesting, uh, interesting point that you brought up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could talk about that for a while too. But, but just to, just to answer Sean's uh, thing, just, uh, briefly, this track of fascism that comes out of, of theosophy, the the the, um, the Nazis, the proto Nazis, were inspired a lot by the Italian fascists, and and early on, um, Mussolini was was interested in Tibetan. Culture, you know, he knew Alexander David Neal, for instance, who was one of the early explorers. Actually, went to Tibet and, and wrote quite a bit about it, sometimes in fanciful ways. But but the idea of um, this ancient wisdom coming from the Far East was embodied in that lore. And of course, the swastika is something that you see around Tibet very much. It's it's a sacred symbol that, that symbolizes energy. You know, the great energy, the the turning of the wheel, all of that in the cosmos. And uh, it can mean thunder. It can mean lots of things, but it's a power symbol. It also means good fortune, you know, in, in some cultures. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's used in parts of Hindu uh, mythology as well. So the theosophists, borrowing Buddhism, borrowing out of uh, Hinduism, adopted this swastika, and and you begin seeing it in certain esoteric publications. Uh, began appearing in the early 1900s in Germany, and um, uh, the 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 people that that became fascist borrowed a lot from what was called Ariosophy, and Ariosophy was a form of Theosophy that believed in the Aryan. It comes from Aryan, R R A R I A. The Aryan people were supposed to be the superior people that dominated India. You know, they came from the Middle East and uh, they brought the sky god with them. You know, uh, so. The, the 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 fascist idea came through Ariosophy. Also, the swastika was adopted then among these people. And I guess the people that supported Hitler felt that this was um, a symbol of their ancient culture came from the Aryan race, which was Tibet, which was, you know, the the that part of India. So that's why the flag was adopted. It's it's their their spiritual source is what they believe. And um, uh, 
Now, in the United States, we had a large fascist movement here also. They were anti-liberal back then. And I mentioned the silver shirts, but they weren't the only one. So there was a big, there was a lot of tension back then in the, in the 20s between the liberal, the Marxist, you know, there was a lot of people in the United States that were leaning that way, that wanted to, to um, bring power to the people, so to speak. You know, the idea that, that the proletariat could rise and, and rule and everything would be shared equally. It was almost a Christian idea, you know, in a sense. And then uh, without God. And, and then you had the fascist idea that you needed um, uh, some kind of a power and, and, and divine right and, and ultranationalism. The spirit of the people, you know, the Uncle Sam idea, the, the idea that the, the fatherland or the motherland was more sacred than anything. And you should be willing to die for her or for him. You know, that, that kind of thing was a blood and so soil. Those two forces were very common back then in the United States. We still see them today, you know, acting mm -hmm. up. Yeah, the blood and soil, and mm -hmm. and also, you know, we see a lot the whole the whole racial thing. That's and that wasn't that a big deal in the IM activity, the uh, the the racial issue. Yeah, when I when I first approached uh, the the IM group, um, this uh, old woman that I talked to, uh, she told me everything I asked. She was very open about it, and I I asked about the race thing, and she said that um, uh, basically that that black people have a peculiar karma that doesn't uh, bring them into the vibration level you need to become an I ammer today. And, you know, which is fascinating because later on when I was doing exit counseling, uh, the black family hired me to get their black aunt who was in her sixties out of the I am group in Washington, DC. But she was part of a temple that was a segregated temple. There was a black I am temple and a white one. And this is back oh, in the late eighties. You know, wow. so we're talking well past segregation and, and, and all of that, right? That is astonishing. It's, it's yeah. even more astonishing that she's okay with that. She was okay with it. You know, somehow they, you know, they bought the idea that, that this is the way God decreed it. And therefore, that's the way it is, right? Um, of course, there's a, there was also this, this thing in, in theosophy, which didn't believe in evolution and thought that, you know, the white race or whatever, the elite race, the Gnostics among us came from some other spiritual source and that the black race was some kind of an aberration of apes and humans mating. You know, that was a common theme from the 19th <sighs> century. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then there was like there there was the the root races. Right. I remember hearing a lot. Yeah, my that talk was about the idea of root race. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, there were seven root races. Like, how do they explain it? Was they and, and I think Mormons have something like this, too, don't they? They, they did, too. Now, they, they've adjusted their so-called inspiration from on high over the years, and blacks are allowed to become higher Mormons now. That's I'll bet they have. 60s. I'll bet they have. Yeah. <laughs> well, not yeah. totally, yeah, right. but, like, but well, in, like... <laughs> in print, you know, they've done that. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, so let, let me, let, let me get, get this sort of straight here, because what, what Blavatsky did with, with Darwin was the same thing that Marx did with Hegel. Okay, Hegel developed this evolving dialectic through Fichte that, that eventually you'd come to a God-organized world, you know, through this, this, this system he put up, you know, that, that Kierkegaard called comic, if you took it seriously. So Marx took Hegel's idea, which was dominant during that, that period, and flipped it on its head and, and showed there's no God involved in this, but there is an evolving dialectic. And, and you know, you have capitalism, which is good to a point. It gets saturated. It has to collapse. 
And then the proletariat comes up and you come up with this utopian state. You know, it's, it's the way history moves, like almost Darwinian in a sense. So like a social Darwinism kind of an approach to it. Blavatsky had a stuffed baboon in her, her, her apartment in New York City when she started. And it was dressed up like Darwin. It had spectacles on and it was holding a copy of The Origin of Species, this baboon she had. <laughs> yeah. So she, she specifically put, took um, Darwin's secular approach to evolution and reinfused it with spirituality, claiming that there were all these root races. The original race of humanoid type creatures was very ethereal, almost angelic. And they became more materialistic through different thousands and thousands of years of evolution until we got down to the material human being that we are now. And now we're moving back towards spirituality and theosophy was the key moving us toward this time and space where we're no longer going to be creatures, we're going to become angelic. So the I am movement taking <laughs> off on this, and for instance, they said that, that when they took over the United States, when the I amers took over the United States, the flag would no longer be red, white, and blue. It would be gold, white, and blue because oh, red is where that color. came from. That's where that yes. gold flag came from. That's I never it. knew where that came from. Oh, yeah. Wow, because red is an evil color. It's the color of, of anger. It it's the color of sex or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, you and, have and a red so, flag here. So, yeah. and, and as far as blood, <laughs> if you cut yourself and, and yeah. you're in that future, I am a thousand year Reich or whatever they thought that we were going to have as advanced beings, blood would be turned to gold. We would no oh, longer wow. have red blood. That's how far and crazy and literal their teachings were getting. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think that, you know, my parents sort of, they probably got rid of some of that craziness. But if you look at some of the Keepers of the Flame lessons and what are in the mm -hmm. Keepers of the Flame lessons, they contain some of that just really out there stuff. Uh, that it, that was, you know, and that's why they kept those secret because if you, you know, you had to be sort of, uh, to become a keeper of the flame was a, as a, as a higher level of membership. They didn't release that information to the normal, you know, average people who came in. Yeah. I, I went through all the keepers of the flame lessons. I mean, I, I began, you know, I applied for them to begin because that was the first step to become a member. And I went to up to 33, I think is they, they had kind of mimicking the, the Masonic 33 levels of initiation is what uh. they did with that. And they were so bizarre and abstruse. I mean, even as a believer, I couldn't make sense of a lot of the stuff that Mark Prophet wrote because he was kind of fishing for his hyper reality and, and coming up with stuff that he was channeling. Right. And channeled information can be really bizarre and vague if you don't edit it. You know? mm -hmm. So, but, but there was one of the keeper lessons talked about alchemy and how you could, you know, turn things into gold, but it intimated that you could really do this kind of thing, you know, that you could actually use the power of the spoken word and, 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 you know, and pick up something, you know, like this object and turn it into gold by, by talking to it, you know? So yeah, when you get, they, when you, they, they implied that in the teachings. When you get into these areas where you can do good magic and, and transformation, spiritual mm -hmm. transformation, you also have on the other side of it, uh, the, the, the dark, which is where you get into this, you know, the, the stuff that's like QAnon, whether you're talking about the aliens or the blood drinking, you know, mm -hmm. Satanists yeah. or whatever. And of course, you know, my Baphomet shirt here is going to, you know, go. is going to piss everybody off, but about that, because they, they really see these things as being real, you know, real parts yeah. of, uh, what's really actually a, a, a battle that I think takes place in human psychology, uh, between, mm. between good and evil. They've externalized that to, to gods and devils, but these are kind of more or less like, you know, fictional 
creatures that you know that are just just invented and so like uh you, you know you bring it back to something like QAnon and they they come up with these you know a uh, uh, blood drinking cannibalistic pedophiles right and that's that's the that's what this represents to a lot of christians you know yes. Absolutely. I, that's really, I'm, I'm also wearing a shirt that, um, is, uh, it's, it's a play on the Misfits. Um, um, and uh, we talked about it earlier and the Misfits is a band and right. And there's a skull and it's, it's all about sort of like the sort of Halloween ish type theme. And it's sort of like ghoulish and it's precisely the kind of stuff that is, that is, that is, uh, that they talk about in cut. They talk about in these organizations as being like sort of the permutations of this evil, right? This is like hard rock and roll with skulls and all this sort of thing. Right. Um, I wanted to also point out that, right. Just to circle back a little bit from what you said earlier, just so our, our listeners know who uh, may not know about this thing. So when you keepers of the flame was sort of one of the many terms, there was Chila's, there was a lot of different terms that were that sort of, uh, that were to, to describe the uh the the sort of adherence to the uh to the cut movement and so there are a lot of different names again but um i just want to sort of point that out so it's not just sitting out there people are like what the hell is a keeper of the yeah. flame but so just so everybody i knows. should have brought that up <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah but i mean almost like when, when you have QAnon, i mean QAnon is almost a channeling uh, uh because they keep dropping these messages right they're almost like channeled yeah. messages and I, I just wondered if you think you know what what's the what is the whole attraction, uh, Joe, to channeling in the first place? Well, uh, you know, I, I've explored it quite a bit. And in fact, I've, I've done a, a lot of research in the sense of sitting in channeler sessions that were quite well known. And and uh, I would pay to go to their meetings and, and the person would be channeling some kind of a being. And the ones I chose to go to were ones that allowed the audience to interact with the channeled being. In other words, it would be like your mother channeling St. Germain and people in the audience asking St. Germain questions. Mm. You know, now that's risky for the channel and that's why most channels won't allow it. So uh, what I think it is basically, uh, you know, I call them mind puppets, the, the ascended masters or, or these creatures that psychics channel like Uncle Harry in the heavens or whatever. It's, it's a mind puppet. It's something that we create in, in ourselves, but we give the illusion uh, to the audience that, it, that the, the thing that possesses us has its own agency. That's the illusion you want, just like with a puppet show. You want the kids to believe that the puppet has its own agency. It's its own agent. It's talking. It has its own mind, its own personality. And, and you can even back up and, like I mentioned in one of my uh, – videos that that the whole movie industry relies on on the audience suspending judgment and suspending reality enough to allow that character on screen or on stage to have a separate agency from the human being that plays it so that you're no longer seeing um you know arnold schwarzenegger you're seeing the terminator and you're mm -hmm. feeling it and you're identifying with the power of the Terminator. And you know, even though your mind kind of flips back and forth a little bit, but basically to enjoy the movie, you have to have the capacity to shut off what we call creature reality, you know, your reality testing and absorb yourself in the magic of, of the theater. And it makes it more enjoyable. So it's a, it's kind of a talent that we have, you know, it, I mean, it's like a tool. It's actually a tool. You know, we have a scissor here that's a tool. We can use it for all kinds of things. You know, I can use it as a weapon and I can use it as a creative object, right? 
So as an actor, you're using it as a creative object, this ability to do a mind puppet that animates your body. And if you do it really well, it's very convincing. People are happy that they you know, enjoyed it and have almost therapeutic reactions because they cry, they smile, they feel rage, you know, they feel happy when the hero wins and, and, and all of that stuff, which is what Greek theater was all about. That's what it was meant to be, to, mm-hmm. to, to have catharsis, right? So, so channeling is a form of acting, but it takes, you know, the tool of, of, um, of, of, of and, and wants you to believe that they're not the agent, that the thing has agency in itself. And that's where the lie comes in. That's where the manipulation comes in. Well, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's totally interesting to me that you have, you know, film and theater and all those things, and they're completely harmless. I mean, they're, you know, you're, you're, it's not completely people get crazy watching film sometimes. Okay. Okay. You can change people's minds. But here's the key, I think. I mean, you have, you have um, something that crosses the line from entertainment to when somebody believes that it's real. And that when you cross that line, that's when all hell breaks loose because you've got this, this, you know, this person, whoever's doing these Q drops, there's been 5,000 Q drops or whatever. And they're effectively, it's a, it's a channel to an unknown source uh, who has its own agency, who is, Mm -hmm. you know, somehow has, has secret knowledge and the idea of secret knowledge that nobody else has and that about things that are real, this is not, this is not a game. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a game, you know, but, but, but but a lot of people take it very seriously. And what, what I wanted to ask you about it is, um, do you think that, uh, QAnon is a religion? Do you think it's an elaborate prank? Do you think it's a cult? I mean, how would you define this phenomenon? Because it's really, it's taken off. It's there are millions of people involved in it. Yeah. Up to 5 million. Uh, and it's everything you mentioned. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a perm. It's full of permutations that shift with, with the, the, the Q drops of the day and, and the conspiracy du jour. Um, I, I think it's, um, it started out as a kind of a game with some serious intent behind it. Uh, but, you know, kind of like Jumanji, <laughs> you know, you play this game <laughs> and you end up in a real world and you're lost in the rabbit hole and you have to, you, you're fighting for your life, right? And then you can emerge from it. Um, you know, I, I use the, the, the book uh, Food Calls Pendulum by Echo as an example where the, 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 the novel talks about these authors that, that come up with this computer game, you know, this conspiracy thing, and they start spreading it around as if it's real, and they get caught up in it themselves. So in other words, the, the game becomes real. It flips during the novel. And, and, and when you're reading it, you really don't know what's real and what's not real. Echo was a brilliant writer. You know, he was a semiotician, and he, he understood his territory. In fact, St. Germain is a character that's a, one of the main characters in Foucault's Pendulum. You know, so it, it's kind of fascinating from my personal view to read it. Um, but, you know, I work in a psych hospital and, and I have for 20 years. And so I meet people at their worst when pe- police bring them in or when they come in. And they're very depressed, they're suicidal or they're psychotic. And um, I, I wrote about this, but I'll give you one example. And this happens often where someone who's having their first psychotic break, they're young and, and the schizophrenia starts to come in. And, and this one young man was coming in and he was very upset. The police brought him in and he claimed that, that he was hearing voices, but these were real spirits coming to him from the past, trying to warn us that something dire is happening to mankind. And he has to tell people about this. 
And, and but there was some of the spirits were kind of evil that was against the ones that were, weren't evil. And one of the spirits was like a machine, more like a cyborg that was talking to him. So he, he had a very elaborate, you know, conglomerate, almost like the ascended masters were beginning to appear. And and um, he went to a church to try to figure out what was going on and they didn't help him, uh, a Catholic church. And he began looking on the Internet and people began to turn him off, tell him, telling him to go dead. In other words, you know, stop looking at this stuff and you'll be better, you know, because he was seeing himself in Wicca. He was seeing mm-hmm. himself in all this kind of stuff. So anyway, our doctor saw him briefly and he said, you know, we got to give him a shot because he was so anxious and, 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 and whatever. And we were going to give him Thorazine to help him calm, calm down. You know, it was just a common old drug that works very well for that kind of condition. Um, so he was arguing with me that, that he didn't want the medication. He wanted to prove to me that his voices were real. I said, OK, you know, let's see. You know, I said, do you think it could read my mind? I said, I'm thinking of a word right now, you know, an animal. I'll give you a hint. And uh, so ask because he was channeling God. He thought he was God was in his head, too. And he guessed things like aardvark and, and whatever. I said, no, I said, it's a three letter word. I was giving him all kinds of hints. And I said, OK, your God's not working. It's cat. The word is cat. That's all I'm thinking. And I was thinking it really loud. He should have heard it, you know. So then he wanted one more test. And this time I wrote a word on a piece of paper and I folded it and I gave it to the nurse. And I said, the nurse is going to hold it. She has your medication. I said, if you can tell me what's on that piece of paper, we won't give you the medication, you know. So he's guessing all kinds of things and and nothing's working. God's not helping him. And uh, so we gave him the shot. And then he asked me, uh, how old, what was the word? And I opened a paper. It was Thorazine, you know, so which is what he got. So (laughs) but but all I'm pointing out here is that that when you're dealing with with channeling, and somebody believes that the agent is autonomous, it's an autonomous complex. That's the same as what we call schizophrenia. Schiz means to split, to split the mind from one section from the other. So what's happening with, with mental patients is um, uh, one of the things we do is, is, is that I do is check what's called reality testing. And you want to see if that's working well in the person. Is this, you're trained to do that by, by looking at what, what their behavior is. So reality testing is a very important part of sanity, of what we mean when we're sane, when we're in sync with the environment, the social environment, the intellectual environment, the physical environment, you know, and, and all of that. Uh, and, and so if we're not reality testing well, we can end up in psychosis or deep depression or, or mania, you know, because the, then it goes out the window. Um, and, and that's basically what you're talking about, I think, as secularists, is you're, you're trying to reality test the social environment. How well is it working? So, um, but, but, but backing up to the channeler, some people that are channeling are quite functional. They do well in society, even though they believe they're channeling Lazarus or, or some other creature, you know, from, from a UFO or whatever. But they still can set that aside and function pretty well. So they're not dysfunctional. They're not the type of person that's going to get hospitalized. And and that's what most channeling groups operate under. The leader is is a functional human being. They're not insane. They are they are, however, participating in a form of schizophrenia. Wow. So that's the best way I can explain it. Wow, that is fascinating. 
It's fascinating. And the, the, the one thing I can say is that, you know, when I growing up in this environment, I kind of thought like my mom and dad were the only ones doing this. And after uh -huh. I got out, I started realizing there's channels everywhere. They're all yeah. over the place. And, you know, a, fr a friend of mine who uh, actually helps us with this show a bit. I mean, his his um, his mother was channeling an entity named Dr. Duran. And, uh, you know, this is like, and the Dr. Duran was like El Moria, very, very similar personality. It's like when I started understanding that these, these, these archetypes of beings that are being channeled are, are fairly common across the yeah. world. And, uh, you know, Ramtha, you know, and, and listening to, and some of these channelers are better than others. They're, they're, they're really, some of them are real performance artists. I think my mom wasn't bad, you know? Oh, your yeah. mom, I think was very talented. I mean, yeah. you know, like, I mean, I, she really knew what she was doing. And just, I, I always remember even as a young person going and speaking to her and being brought up. And of course, my dad would be basically like on his knees. Right. And, you know, and I'd, I'd be standing there and her presence was such that, that, that you really felt like you were in the presence of somebody who was um, divine or somebody who was a cut above, not your just normal human being, right? And of course, a combination of that is the way she was revered, but also I think it's just, and, and, and sort of me being a child also, right? But I think also that she really was talented. Like she was a really charismatic, talented woman. Yeah. Now, you, you got to remember what charisma is here. And, and I agree. She had charisma, but within a context. Outside the context, she would seem bizarre, weird, mm -hmm. even awkward. You know, mm -hmm. so charisma is about relationship. You know, when you look at the meaning of the word, it only works in relationship. And, and so the you have the person has to project the charisma on the, the hero object. There has to be a hero object. And if you don't believe the person's a hero, they might just come off as an asshole. They don't feel charismatic at all. You know, <laughs> for instance, I mean, today you have people that, that believe that Donald Trump is charismatic. Right. But if you don't buy his act, you know, you, you can use all kinds of other words to describe him. You don't feel the charisma. You know? <laughs> Definitely so, not so charismatic. Char charisma depends on context, on, mm -hmm. on relationships. So it's not not yeah. something that's innate, is what I'm trying to point out. Oh, that's, that's a really interesting insight. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, I, any final thoughts? Because I think we've actually hit our time limit. I, you know, wow, this has been an quick. incredibly interesting conversation. And I just, you know, I don't know, Christoph, you have any final thoughts or Joe? Well, I have a question, Joe. Uh, so are you at this point in your life, um, you know, do you practice any kind of any kind of, I mean, I assume that you're not involved in any cult, um, but I also assume that you're not involved in, 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 a, in any religion, but is there any kind of sort of spirituality or some sort of idea from that camp or that you that you that you follow or practice or think about? Yeah, you know, at my age, I'm 73 now. So I've, I've explored a lot of this stuff. And I, I was forced to being a, a intervention specialist, you know, I would constantly be challenged by some new group and new idea. So I had to have a good handle on comparative religions, what they really taught and the permutations and how they they, they, they valued themselves and the conflicts within the group and all of that. Um, uh, and and I, I also have a deep interest in philosophy. And so I've looked at a lot of that, you know, and I come to find that I'm basically a pragmatist. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I see atheism as a kind of a symbolic way of looking at the world. And, and we need symbolic ways of looking at the world, but, but we want to keep them healthy. That's the thing. Human beings, according to Otto Rank, are forced into this idea of creating a symbolic world in order to deal with the terror of death. 
If we didn't have it, we would collapse psychologically. So we, we all come up with this stuff. If we don't, we become really neurotic, believe me. So, <laughs> so whether it's atheism or the, theism or, or some weird mix of like Spinozian panentheism, whatever it is that floats your boat, that's good. That's not a bad idea. So I've come to pragmatism and what pragmatism, according to Charles Sanders Peirce and um, uh, uh, God, he was a psychologist that my mind's not working here, but, but people like, um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll remember later, but Peirce was the one that coined this term in the 19th century. And, and he um, uh, basically said that it's not really an ism like other things are. It's a way of looking at anything, a pragmatic way to make it kind of work. So you could be a pragmatist as a Catholic, a pragmatist as an atheist, a pragmatist as, as a Buddhist. A prag so what it does is you apply as much skepticism as your system can bear in order to keep it healthy. That's the best way I can describe a pragmatist. Um, I don't discount the value of certain kinds of Catholicism or certain kinds of Buddhism or certain kinds of, of Islam. Uh, there are what I call elegant expressions of these religions with good people in them. And those people can tolerate dissent. That's the, that's the whole point that, that I have to look for. If a pragmatist is someone that can tolerate dissent as long as it isn't extreme to the point, you know, where I'll kill you if you disagree with me. You, know, you, <laughs> right. you, you, you should be able to tolerate it and, and argue with it or, or discuss with it. So, so basically, yeah, I, I follow, follow um, uh, that, that idea of Peirce and, and so many others have done that after him. Um, it, it's kind of low key uh, uh, belief system, if you want to put it that way. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we like that. We like, you know, because secularism is really that. It says nobody gets to be in charge. No religion gets to, you know, make the rules for everybody else who doesn't believe that religion. So, uh, you know, re uh, all religions should be taught as, you know, comparative religion, like you said, in school, so right. that people understand what other people believe, rather than just being taught one religion, the state religion, which essentially here is Christianity. You know, right. we don't like that. We think that uh, that leads to, you know, Christian nationalism and all kinds of other problems and conflict with Islam and conflict with, you know, everything else. So um, that's why we're radically secular. And but but, you know, when you look at the founding fathers, they, they pushed toward a kind of secularism, too. Mm -hmm. and, if you, and if you look into the um, Federalist Papers, um, one of the things they argued that was most damaging to any kind of a nation was called factionalism. And you can mm -hmm. throw cults, gangs, mafia, whatever you want. But but to have a faction running the nation was dangerous. Yeah. So they set up the system and so that factions couldn't rule here. You could rule them. You know, you could get them out of office in a few years if you had to. Yeah. Um, and, and they allowed freedom of expression and freedom of religion so that the factions could argue with one another here freely without one being able to make rules and, and laws about the other. Yes. Um, so it's kind of messy. And it doesn't satisfy everybody. Uh, it certainly doesn't satisfy the factionalists. You know, if you're a hardcore <laughs> fundamentalist, you're not going to like that. But hell, you live in America. If you're an American, you got to put up with this. The founding fathers were pragmatists in this regard. Yeah. Well, Joe Zimhart, thank you so much for being with us. We're really happy that you took the time and uh, really enjoyed all of your insights. So uh, hopefully we can talk to you again sometime. Yeah, appreciate it. Nice to, nice to be here. Thank you again.
All right. That was a great segment with Joe Zimhart. And uh, now it's time to do Off the Radical Radar. So what, what were you up to this week, uh, Christoph? Yeah, well, um, as I talked about, um, I did some voting, which was pretty awesome. Um, and um, it was really just sort of great to cast that ballot. I remember casting the ballot back in 2016 and just feeling really great about it. But I think I feel even more great about it, dumping that sort of envelope in. And um, that was amazing. I also did uh, today earlier, I did some maintenance. So um, we do, I had to clear a gutter. We have an old house, hundred over a hundred years old. There's always something going wrong with it. Um, and and frankly, we do pretty well overall, but maintenance is important. And, and so I maintain the grass and maintain the house. And, it, and I, I bring this up because it's so in, in our society, everyone talks about job, job creators and innovators and how important all these people are and how sexy it is. But you know, the people that keep our, our our world going are people that do maintenance, right? So people that maintain um, our sewer system, maintain our electric system, who take away the garbage, who do all the things that make, and also who maintain the products that the innovators create. So I just want to point out how important that is to, and this is why I always harp on maintenance. If anybody watches my Instagram story, you'll know that I almost saying maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. Um, and the last thing is I just want to do a shout out to Joe Acapinti, who did our he wrote the, our piece for the last Just Words fallacy. And also, you know, Joe, but Joe is just an awesome guy. And I think that it's important to, to be like, look, to, to, to recognize the people that are that are supporting our show during these early stages. We're only 16 episodes in and we have these people who are like weekly watchers and listeners and we love them. This is our brain trust. All, all, all these people and, and are contributing to this, you know, as my, we, we are grateful. Absolutely. And um so yes, for me, same thing. We voted, and uh, I think it was it was great because we what we did is uh, at, during the judicial primary. You know, nobody bothers with judges. And so true. During the judicial primary, we actually watched all the judicial debates, and so um, we we chose because I'm an anti hierarchy voter. I will vote for you know Democratic appointee over Republican, uh, secular law school over you know BYU or Notre Dame. Uh, you know I'll vote for a woman over a man. I'll vote for uh, a, a, a person of color over a white person. I'm just down the line. You know if there's a choice, if there's an equally qualified candidate, I'm gonna I'm gonna go that way. So um, that's what we did, and most of our our judge candidates won actually the ones that we voted for in the primary and the ones that didn't you know i went there was a voter guide and i was able to basically use those criteria to select you know but that was good because there's like 30 of them i mean and these are oh, people wow. who are who are making law they're making mm -hmm. law and they're ruling on on cases that are important and you know the justice system is so we did that and then of course you know obviously voted straight ticket blue for everything else and you know so it felt good it felt really good and um the other thing we did this week is, and you were involved in this too, Christoph, was we're discussing changing up our music theme for the show because we just picked a piece of library music and now, you know, it's getting a little bit tired and we want to do our own thing. So um, we're going to, we're going to be working on that. And that's about it. Yeah. And just like that, we've checked below the radar. Mm hmm. Okay. Well, our third segment today, and obviously we've covered a lot of ground, but we want to, we just want to briefly, you know, kind of go over some of the hopeful things and, you know, what we would do cleaning up the mess of this administration, what we would do, you know, if Biden does win. And, you know, I just wonder, Christoph, what you think about this, if we're ever going to be able to look forward to a time in our history when we're not going to be dealing with this, you know, fake news, conspiracy bullshit and QAnon. I mean, it's just like, are we doomed? 
This, I think that's a really interesting question. And it really, I think, harks back to the, what we talked about last week, I think, in some ways, right? We talked about um, the uh, the social dilemma. And and it dovetails also with what I heard uh, one of Obama's, uh, when I uh, watched, listened to uh, him talk for about an hour, He one of his biggest concerns, right, is after Trump is gone, how do we rein in the problem of fake news, the in, like, and and the internet uh, sort of conspiracy, the, the the impact that the internet has on the explosion of conspiracy theories and people being able to create their own reality, right? How do we establish? some level of objective truth. I mean, I think this is why secularism and the radical secular and what we're doing here is so important, right? Because it establishes a baseline from which, right, a part of it is sort of rationality. We talk about that, right, as a baseline from a starting point from which we can have conversations and we can have debates about various things and we should have debates. But oh yeah, you know what I'm saying? We're going to keep hammering. And, you know, the, the, the main thing we're, that we're concerned about, like, Honestly, I, you know, most things that involve expert opinion, I don't really have an opinion. I'm going to listen to the experts. And that's, I think, number one, we got to get people to start listening to experts again, respecting expertise, because, you know, I don't know, you don't know. And, and, you know, we, we want to have the people who've spent their lives working on a problem be the ones that we put in charge of the problem. And so, um, you know, but we can't do it as if without the political system. I mean, if, if do you think, uh, th there's going to be court packing. How are we going to deal with this? Yeah, this is this is this is huge, man. And you know, I listened to a a really great segment this week. I don't remember what I listened to it on, but there was a it was a, a, one of these uh, very very sort of left wing uh, lefty um, organizations, nonprofit organizations, and it's all about getting um, getting progressives, people like you and me like into the fight in terms of judiciary because the judiciary isn't as sexy as the as the uh as the other branches and so they and so people start start like you know eyes glaze over and it ends up not sounding that important now the rbg the death of rbg obviously sort of infused the race with people that now starts like, like with energy about around this issue but he brought this up and he was like, look, you know, we as Democrats and as progressives, we need to start fighting fire with fire. I love hearing this because he because we talk about this all the time. We're in a knife fight in a fucking phone booth. This is not let's go back to the genteel Feinstein approach. Right. Which is like, oh, no, they're just She's like out. us. She's out. She needs to go because that and you talk about we need progressives that are that, that, that are taking this seriously, that care about this stuff. And so and, and he and he brought up a concept which is really important. The way this works is mutually assured destruction. And so, just like just like a nuclear the, the, the nuclear arms race, and that means that we they, they the Republicans might come to heel and start start acting like adults if they've realized that we as progressives are actually going to fight fire with fire. Once we right, so like the argument that is going to be now an arm like a sort of arms race um, for the uh, for court packing arms race from now forward, I don't know that that holds any water because again. If the Republicans realize that we are willing to fight on their terms, we mm -hmm. are willing to get into the into we're willing to get into the knife fight. We are not going to demur. I mm -hmm. think then we have a chance. That's the most important thing. And, you know, I think it, it affects everything. Like, for example, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade. I mean, there's all sorts of questions that come up. I was looking at a map last night about um, what's, you know, where abortion would be illegal, places that have trigger laws. As soon as the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, immediately abortion becomes illegal in those states. There's like 10 states. And um, so what happens then? 
okay, the idea right. is that people are going to maybe travel from those states to other states. But you see, there's nothing stopping those states then from criminalizing. Like if their citizen goes to another state, gets an abortion, they could have sanctions when they get home. You know, there's all That's kinds of things. Point. They could also uh, start to do things like uh, jerk the medical license of any doctor who's ever performed abortions in another state, you know, or, right. um, you know, uh, you know, things like that. So the good news, I think, about Roe v. Wade being overturned is that it would we the, we take that wedge issue back from Republicans. They've they've had this wedge issue for That's 50 fucking years. OK, and so now now Democrats are going to be energized to turn out to overturn these state laws, to elect state politicians who will restore the right to abortion in their state. OK, that's a big bright spot to me is that, that is so true. That's so true. I, it, you know what? I I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't no, no, please. Um, <clears throat> I, I was just thinking, right, like the the analogy here is really works. And that is that um, Trump brought racism and uh, and the problems with our government and the problems with uh, with with money and, and money in government, like right to the fore. Right. And same thing with McConnell for the last fucking 14 years or whatever. He's been showing exactly what the problem is when mm -hmm. there is unaccountability in government. This he is exactly the problem. Right. And so um, and this, the Roe v. Wade issue is going to make this very salient. And for particularly for women, young women, uh, for obvious reasons, but for everyone who cares about women's right to choose, all of a sudden it's going to be stopping an academic thing up there on the ether. And all of a sudden it's going to be very, very real. If you live in Texas, yeah. you cannot get an abortion. If you live in Ohio, you cannot get an abortion just right. like that. Right. And just so like I think, that. so I think it'll, it'll help pull progressives off of the bench in the same way that Trumpism has pulled progressives off the bench. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, in terms of that, you know, we've had this situation in in our our, our politics forever, where um, this money has been affecting things, right? And um, and and also theocracy. And I've been railing about theocracy for twenty years, and all of a sudden, you know, I think in a way this could be a blessing in disguise because all of a sudden people who didn't listen. And, and it's like, I, I hate being right about this. I, I really don't like to be right. But, you know, we started warning about this when George W. Bush got elected, that he was going to, right. that we were going to be moving towards this theocracy. And now it's real. Amy Coney Barrett is going to bring in theocracy to the United States and people are going to have to get off their asses if they want to turn it around. And that is going to, you know, young people, young people have no idea what it's like to live in a, a world where, you know, abortion, gay marriage and all these things are illegal. They haven't experienced it. I mean, some have. I mean, gay marriage has only been legal for five years. But, you know, the acceptance, the the universal sort of acceptance of these things has been, you know, any, if you're 20, 30 years old, you've, your whole life, you know, there's been uh, it's been accepted. So. Um, we're good. We have to let people know, and the Republicans are going to do this. They're going to, they're going to let people know what the stakes are. And that's, I think the most hopeful thing. Um, I think so, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and so restoring voting rights, because this is the other area that they're mm -hmm. going to get into. They want to lock in this theocracy and then they want to prevent our ability to vote it out. So restoring voting rights after, you know, Biden is elected is going to be job one and doing it in a way that, that, that passes Supreme Court scrutiny, because remember, the Voting Rights Act was all about overruling states. And so if we can get this done at the state level, then it makes an end run around that problem. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, if we don't, if we are unable to pack the court or uh, put in, there are 
all kinds of proposals out there from the from the from the most reasonable to the most uh, most obscure. Um, this is not something Biden's going to do unless they they start doing unless the court starts doing really really crazy things. Then you're going to see Biden do this. But Biden's an institutionalist; he's not going to do that unless it gets to that point. Um, but uh, but these are but these sort of things are like great news is, you know, Nancy Pelosi has already passed these these bills are already passed in the house right like they already mm-hmm. exist they right if we get the senate like on day one these bills will be on the senate floor right on day one voting rights national election as a national holiday all mm-hmm. the sort of things that we can we can put in place to really counter some of this stuff and basically hem the hem the supreme court in mm-hmm. uh, uh for, from a legal perspective and even pass, you know, even enshrine, uh, you know, a woman's right to abortion in the law. Exactly. So it's exactly. no longer just dependent on being a privacy right or whatever other rationalizations Roe v. Wade is based on. Exactly. This is exactly right. So you go ahead, strike down Roe Ro v. Wade. But guess what? We have the other two branches of government. This is a three prong strategy. You might have an obstinate uh, right wing uh, sort of political, I'm sorry, uh, judicial machine nationwide. But they be, and you don't. They don't make laws, right? Uh, they don't make laws, and so um, there are ways and strategies that Democrats can take to um, to, to 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 sort of hem the Supreme Court in. And look, I mean, they are ensuring, just like in California. Cal, I always say to Lindsay, California, if you want to see what the future looks like, go to California, because California is always doing what everyone else will be doing in 10 years or 20 years. And so look at California, right? California tried this too. They they went on an anti-immigrant tirade for X number of years, and then and they did well for a while, but eventually that that they they lost they got on that. Thrown out. They got mm. thrown out, and now it just and now they just now uh, you know the Democrats just do what they want in California. Yeah. The night Republican nightmare, single party democratic rule. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully oh, we'll have wait. that. Everything depends on the Senate, folks. Everything depends on it. So the fingers crossed. <laughs> The whole shebang, man. And, um, you know, as we finish out this thing, uh, it I just cannot keep. I remember when Trump was first elected and, and remember how dark those days were. And, and, and the silver lining was always what we're talking about right now, which is that this will reveal what you people like you and I have been talking about for years and years and years. The things that people don't wanted to pretend weren't real, wanted to not, wanted to say like, oh no, both sides and all that. No, 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 it is not both sides. There are bad people everywhere for sure, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein was a Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. Trump was a Democrat for most of his life, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying there's not bad people in the Democratic Party, but we're talking about trends and directions and what these parties stand for. And it's being revealed precisely what the Republican Party stands for and what they've been riding this tiger, as Obama likes to say, they've been riding this tiger at least since the 60s, right? They've been riding this tiger of racism and and right grievance and and racial animus and because it got them votes and because they didn't want to have to change. Um, and so they and and now it this is it. This is it. They've ridden the tiger as long as they can ride it, I think. I really do. And even if Trump gets another three years. It will only be even worse after that, like even more obvious to everybody that this party is completely bankrupt. They're done. They're done. They're done. They're done. 
Yeah. All right. Well, once again, I want to remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to hit that red subscribe button and be sure to give us a five-star rating at your podcast host. Tell your friends and family about our show. Word of mouth really matters. And check out the Word Just Words Fallacy Medium publication. The link is in the bio. And look, thank you everybody for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.